Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. We are back, back after probably the longest summer hiatus we've taken. I, I'm, I'm uh, glad. Uh, I hope the listeners have stuck with us, but I, I'm certainly grateful for it and had a great time. Um, but want to hear from? Probably not. It's like all those people who are never coming back to church. <laughs> same, same sort of thing. Okay. <laughs> Sayonara. That's right. You turn off the tab, the faucet of, of content, and they just. God, I hope off. that's not true. But continue. Me yeah. too. Well, how was the hiatus? How's the summer been? I made you some content. <laughs> I made you some con- some sweet, sweet content. <laughs> sweet content. Sarah, let's start with you. What's what's new? I mean, still sad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so comforting. Uh, Something's never sad. changed. Yeah, uh, but a really good summer. It was really nice. Uh, we settled into our little getaway house in Oxford, and that was just amazing because life is very simple there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it's not simple if you live there full time, but for, for our purposes, it was very simple. Our kids could like walk around the corner and go to a little art camp and walk around the other corner and buy donuts. So um, it was really sweet. And yeah, we got to see a lot of family. Um, I have this incredible niece and her, uh, dad runs a restaurant and bartends and her mom is a pharmacist and she's 18 months old. So they're like running in opposite directions constantly. So I got to keep her, which was so special. So yeah, it was good. It was really good. Went to Oregon with my brother and future sister-in-law, which was really nice. You know, my brother and I, Aaron, we grew up doing a lot of like big family vacations together. Mm Mm-hmm. Where our mom would like aggressively wake us up at 630 in the morning and um, basically make us eat so much at breakfast that we didn't have to eat lunch so we could just keep going and seeing things. So, yeah, felt a little rebellious to like sleep in and like <laughs> have got, wine at lunch. Didn't you, didn't you send us a photo of uh, you guys on the Goonies beach? Like the, um, We did the whole. Yeah, we did. We did the whole thing. So it was, that your, was, it was your time out there. It was, it was your, your time. time out there. It, it was. It was. And um, and we also did Dollywood with our really, really good friends. Oh. Um, that was I have to say, like, don't sleep on Dollywood. Like, if you think you're going to some like silly theme park, you are. And also it's very well kept up. There are incredible, really hokey. Oh my God. The shows are just, um, from another planet. Um, and you'll see photos of Dolly's family, like, and you've never seen a seventies wedding till you've seen photographs of like Dolly's family and seventies weddings. The amount of like hair, layered hair that men had in those photographs with like powder blue. I mean, suits. I just, anyway, it was feathered. It was, it was feathered. It's just these like layers of hair and the women are dressed like 
70s antebellum like you know nothing about it is pc you know it just it was just my daughter our seven-year-old was just like i would like to move here do they have pictures of her they're amazing it just warmed my heart i actually put it on the some of the mockingbird social media because people people have been rooting for this uh (laughs) it was so dollywood pilgrimage it was Um, really good so rutger what about you Good summer. Good time up in uh, the mountains with um, my family and then also some of my extended uh, family, which was really fun. So swimming and cliff jumping and rapid riding and, you know, all that kind of um, adventure type stuff. And then Jamie and I had the chance to take a couple fun little trips uh, for some for a wedding I did and I was invited to preach somewhere. So that was nice just to have time for the for the two of us, and now blessedly everyone is back in school, which is just amazing. Although Marshall only had a half day today, tomorrow's full day. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Um, it was good. Um, I will say right at the moment, um, four members of my wife's family have COVID, and oh. two two of them are hospitalized. Oh, and uh, so oh, yeah, th- this past week has been rough, and she spent a lot of time on the phone with family, and you know, then also taking your oldest son back to college is always a little bit. Uh, you know, that's that that can be difficult as well. Yeah. So we're mm. it's uh, things have been a little intense the past week, but we had a good summer and um, heading heading into fall, which we all thought would be normal and is not normal. Well, I, I uh, I've spent most of the summer trying to write a book and uh, it's it's coming mm. along. It's good. not it's not where it needs to be, but um, it there has been some moments of inspiration, which has been great. And then we, we traveled a bunch. Um, I mean, I was writing while we were on the road, but I just got back from Michigan, from Northern Michigan, where I was teaching at a, a Camp Arcadia, which is just like the, the most beautiful spot uh, that I had never, I didn't grow up with any sense that Northern Michigan was a place people went to vacation, but it is just the UP glorious and it feels very underdeveloped. So hopefully this, now that they've heard the mocking cast, it's going to just explode. <laughs> but like you guys, I mean, the transition all this clergy with all that money for uh, secondary housing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but like you guys, the transition back to fall and all the moving pieces is super intense i mean it's just mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're recording on the, se- the second day of school for my kids and i think it's going well I, I don't know you know it's things are changing by the second so um as the transition how's the transition back been sarah oh uh i my middle schooler joined the soccer team so he has to run for like four or five hours every week just they're like get him out there and move them and um, I've never seen him so happy. So <laughs> it's been really good. I'm just like, you can cancel school. Do not cancel soccer. Okay. These are the rules. So, we have to at least have this. So like all boats rise when, when Neil's <laughs> right. getting more energy out. Oh yeah. He's, he's our canary in the coal mine. So yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I honestly like it, like RJ, I mean, it's pretty miraculous when suddenly you have total silence and can get things done. So, mm. and you're not like feeding people constantly. So. Well, RJ, yeah. I'm sorry yes. to hear about Jamie's family. That is yeah. it's scary. It is scary. It is. Well, Just, yeah. let's jump in. We got a great, lot of great things to talk about today. There's a, <clears throat> I sort of cherry picked some of my favorite articles from while we were gone. And the first one, is uh, this is by Amanda Mull in the Atlantic, who wrote that American shoppers are a nightmare. 
Mm. Like the, if one of the aviation administrations reported that less than six months into 2021, airlines had reported more unruly passengers than in any full year since it began collecting data. Wow. A Southwest flight attendant lost two teeth after a passenger <gasps> punched her in the face. A Delta flight had to be diverted after a passenger threatened to take the plane down. United is offering only lower alcohol options such as beer and wine and only on longer flights. But uh, Mull says that the flight attendants are merely the tip of the service work iceberg. Throughout the pandemic, as you know, uh, videos of irate uh, customers screaming, whether it's about masks or or throwing things or assaulting employees at big box and grocery stores, they've become like a social media mainstay. Uh, and as Americans return en masse to in-person commerce, the situation only appears to be getting worse. I didn't realize that, it, that what happened at, at Trader Joe's where eight people were injured recently. Short-fused shoppers becoming verbally abusive and otherwise degrading over slow service or sold-out goods is becoming quite a thing. Uh, she goes on to sort of go a little bit more bigger picture. She says, the experience of buying a new television or a double cheeseburger in a store has gotten worse in your lifetime. It's gotten worse for the people selling TVs and burgers, too. The most immediate culprit is decades of cost-cutting. As wages and resources dwindle, more expensive and experienced workers get replaced with fewer and more poorly trained hires. Uh, When customers can't find anyone to help them or have to wait too long in line, they take it out on whichever overburdened employee they eventually hunt down. Now, for Americans in a socially isolating culture... The consumer realm is the place where many people can most consistently feel as though they are asserting their agency. Most people in the United States don't exactly have a plethora of opportunities to develop meaningful identities outside their economic station. Mm. Creative and athletic pursuits are generally cut off when people enter the workforce. Fewer people attend religious services than in generations past. And loneliness and alienation are widespread. This is not a feature of a healthy society. Even before the pandemic pushed things further to extremes, the primacy of consumer identity made customer service interactions particularly conflagratory. Being corrected by a salesperson, forgotten by a bartender, or brushed off by a flight attendant isn't just an annoyance. For many people, it is an existential threat to their self-understanding. I mean, I'd seen a lot of these videos of people yelling and jumping over the counters to losing their mind on the flight, losing their mind on the flight or losing their mind at the you know, McDonald's or something like that. But I didn't I hadn't put it two and two together that um, the experience of shopping as well as the experience of service work has is really, um, you know, uh, combustible right now. Mm-hmm. Have you have you guys seen this? What do you think? I mean, recently I was at my favorite smoothie place and on the app, they advertise that pumpkin smoothies are out, but then you can't order them on the app. And so I definitely complained, um, to the powerless 19 year old behind the counter, um, (laughs) about their app. So, uh, before we launch into talking about people being crazy, I want to say that, um, I'm sure I swam in a percentage of that sort of ire, Mm. um, Cause I, when I said it to her and she was like, I, I don't have anything to do with the app. I was like, Oh yeah, gosh, I'm that person right now. Cool. Um, about a pumpkin smoothie on that person. So mm. that's great. Mm. Um, that was the first bad choice there. Pumpkin <laughs> smoothies. I should not. Sorry. It's your first mistake. It's fall here, RJ. It's only 97 degrees. Exactly. Um, yeah. I, 
I mean, I so f- one thing we talk about a lot at home right now is when we go out to eat, we need to lower our expectations of what that experience will be like mm. because we've seen all the signs. We saw them a lot when actually when we were in Tennessee on vacation about everyone is understaffed, no one wanted to show up for work today. Um, and so knowing things are going to take longer um, and that they may not have what you want is it's an interesting experience as an American who's always gotten what she wanted. You mm. know, I'm like, huh, like, this is OK. Like one more thing is falling apart. OK. We had that, too. Like we go to a restaurant and they're like, oh, it'll be a 20 minute wait. And you're like, but you're only half full. Right. How can it be a 20 minute wait when right. you're half full? You know, and they're like, oh, because, yeah, because nobody is here. Yeah. And we're operating this entire place with three people. Yeah. Yeah. They were, there was a, an interesting podcast I was listening to about people quitting and they interviewed a waitress. This Did American you hear Life. This? I was going to mention that. Life. Yes. yes. And she talked about, you know, I mean, she was somebody who really, I think, loved service work, had always wanted to, you know, to be the kind of waiter at a high end restaurant that got a great tip. And she, it was, I mean, there were two things that really struck me. One was that um, one of the patrons left her, you know, with the tip, she wrote a note on the receipt that said, thank you for making this feel normal, or thank you for giving us a normal light night. And it just made the waitress irate because she's like, nothing about this is normal. Hmm. Um, so it was like this woman was trying to leave something lovely and it really hit her. Well, and I'm risking way. my life. I'm yeah. risking my life to give you one hour of normalcy. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then as an of essential the, worker, the other thing that hit me was that, um, often when people were going to tip her, they would ask her to lower her mask to see how pretty she was what yes (laughs) yes and i was like oh my god i mean i can imagine people thinking that but actually doing it can you um i like i i'm just like i yeah it was it was there were worse things than that in that pod that was that pod yeah Mm. i felt bad for that that no i i had the experience the other night we went out to dinner for one of my son's birthdays and uh, you know, it was a it was a nice place, and we sort of built it up as being great. And then they were out of like three things, and oh, all of a yeah. sudden, I'm thinking, oh, "Come on!" You know, like yeah. Part of me is like, "I'm rooting for you guys. I really want this to Did work out." Do they have out. pizza, Dave? Do they have pizza? RJ, just, <laughs> you know where to go. <laughs> it was it was a Brazilian restaurant, so I was, oh. you know, I was I was looking for some yuca fries, and they had clearly not gotten any yuca fries. Wow! So thank you, RJ, for. <laughs> making me feel only like. unlimited meat <laughs> only unlimited meat exactly but uh, you know it's it's not only the entitlement that comes through but the expectation and the people so there's the compassionate side of you know everyone's dying for some normalcy everyone yeah. wants to have a nice time and yes yeah and we what, what, what do we call this the 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 hot vax summer or something like that that there was right we got this teasing this summer of like uh, vaxed and wax vaxed and wax oh my goodness <laughs> i know i'm the only one that can say it and it has to be said yeah. <laughs> i'm glad you said it i found myself definitely giving larger tips for whatever that's worth not because mm-hmm. i'm more sanctified but because i i uh yes I just, I, I well it is because i'm more sanctified let's face it i mean i mean there it's right it's it, there is an interesting thing as a christian because she you know she gestures in this way to um this idea about people not having basically religious institutions and you know there there is like a way that we function in the world god willing um as christians in our better moments where you know i mean there's a there's a message of grace there that's both like 
I mean, I had a horrible grief weekend this past weekend. Horrible, horrible. I can't, it was so bad. I did not go to church on Sunday morning. I took my kids to the pool. And afterwards, Josh was like, we're going out to a nice Italian lunch. And we did, you know? And honestly, I feel that energy that woman wrote on the receipt of like, thank you for giving me a normal experience mm. and a frozen peach bellini, you know? Um, but also, there's this experience as Christians of, of just grace and it's always that inconvenient grace where you are like, these people are kind of doing the best they can. And like, this wasn't the experience I wanted, but like, you know what? It's not all about me. And like, I should probably tip them a little more, even though they didn't have my yucca fries, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's both, right? Yeah, I know. I know. RJ, what, 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 what does this bring up for you? Well, we did, we did quite a bit of flying this summer between, you know, vacation and, and some work stuff and getting our kids, you know, getting our son back to college. And it, it a lot of it was like a total nightmare, I have to say. Like, my oldest son spent like 18 hours in Chicago O'Hare, which was awful. And we couldn't figure out how to get him home because there was a rainstorm, but there was also a shortage. And it was just, oh. it was very, very stressful. Um, you know, one day, Jamie and I were supposed to fly somewhere. We woke up one day and they changed our flights and anyway, and, and again, that's a, such a first world problem. And yet so many people hate to fly, mm -hmm. you know, and the idea of being trapped in an airplane with nowhere to go when the air conditioning might not work, especially if you can't have like a little glass of white wine to take the edge off is a mm -hmm. total nightmare, you know? And so I, I feel for people on both sides of the thing, especially when it, really does become something that that like flying that that traps you in a space where you can't get out if you struggle with things like um claustrophobia you know uh so so i get that um and then i was totally going to bring up the 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 waitress also in this american life because she talked about it uh powerfully um but the, the the line in the article that got me was what did it say the pandemic has shown just how desperately the consumer class aka everyone well, not every, a lot of people. How us, desperately for the, sure. Yeah, for us for sure. How desperately the consumer class clings to the feeling of being served. Oh. And that's so true, right? That when you just yes. need, when you don't feel like cooking and you just yeah. need like a night off and you can afford to go to a restaurant, um, you want to go and be served and have it be easy and not eat what you want and not have to do dishes. And it reminded me, but I think it's true. I think it's true on every level. Cause I remember in, um, nickel and dimed, uh, you know, Barbara Ehrenreich mm -hmm. went to go work at like Walmart for a little while. Mm -hmm. And she said, basically her entire life was just picking up stuff mm -hmm. because people would walk in and there was something freeing about like checking someone out and then just dumping it somewhere mm -hmm. and not having to fold it and put it away and take care of it, just sort of discarding with it, that yeah. we all have spaces in our life where we want to go and kind of make a mess and have someone else take care of it. Um, that that's part of American culture, I think, from top to bottom. So, Isn't that um, Jerry Seinfeld always said that there's a, an unspoken agreement with the movie theaters that if I'm going to pay you know, $10 for a thing <laughs> of popcorn, right. I also reserve the right to leave it completely scattered on the ground when I go. Yes, or like a sporting event or like yeah. anything, right. you know, anything like that. I'm sure that's probably true of church too. Like I'm going to go and I'm just going to leave my book strewn around and my worship bulletin. I'm going to do whatever I want mm -hmm. and somebody who's going to come, come along me after me and clean it up. Um, but Sarah, I think you're right. Just, it certainly has been a time to learn about patience, not getting what we want to reconcile with, um, how much we look to other people to kind of serve us, how much we expect that. Mm. Um, I think it's, you know, a little bit. 
Yeah. It's sort of interesting. I mean, I always, I always think of clergy or people in ministry who it's in most settings, it's unclear whether or not, or there are certain settings where it's unclear whether or not you are part of the group that you are ministering to, or you are their servant, uh-huh. or you're their help. And especially uh-huh. like, uh, you know, people, you know, go to vacation places and there's a little chapel and someone serves there for a little bit and you get to pretend like you're part of the, you know, I don't know what it is, uh, you know, um, Jackson, Wyoming, a crowd, but at the same time, you're also expected to show up on Sundays and sort of do the bidding in a way. I mean, it's it's a life of service, which I think is something that is not uh, news to anyone who goes into ministry. But there's a slight awkwardness about the status that is, um, it you put you in a, in a, in a, in a, different place than than someone who is, you know, I don't know, cleaning houses or serving food. Um, the other thing I want to say is, I don't know if I told the story before, but I used to run, help run uh, tours in Europe of Reformation sites. Have I hmm. talked about this before? No. Uh, yeah, I did it for a bunch of, for, it's usually for... You're like 80. <laughs> I did it for... I mean, you had so many fascinating... Well, because Dave also okay. speaks fluent German. He lived in Germany for it's a while, so he's like well, a perfect person. I was hired to do, basically, because I could speak German, and yeah. um, so he's it it like, usually American Christians who would go on these tours, it was semi-pilgrimages, and it'd be sponsored by a group, and one year, um, it, sometimes it was like Episcopalians, and sometimes it was Presbyterians, and sometimes it was Baptists, and sometimes it was Notre Dame the Catholics and and then one time it was the board of directors of Wheaton College wow so very very capital E evangelical um Lots of, by the way, lots of very sweet people, a few people that were maybe not as sweet, and it was a mixed bag, but there was, I, I've, I forged some wonderful relationships on that, um, but I'll say this, because it was a German-run company, they, when they realized that very, very few people of these drank alcohol, uh-huh. they came to me and they said, we're, we're not going to make any money. Like, what is going to happen? We're, we're, we're freaked out. I mean, some of these people are the types that don't even dance. It's that kind of, right. that kind of crowd. And, um, so I said, just wait till the end, you know, uh, just w- wait till the end. Cause on the last night they do a big plea for, uh, tips and for gratuities. And, um, so they're, they're freaking out that no one is making, they're, they're not, buying any alcohol and that's a that amounts for an enormous amount of their margin and so on that last night i say you know listen this is what's happened here uh these folks uh, usually are used to selling alcohol and we i just explained it and yeah. and i said you know if there's any uh they rely on this for their livelihood and please be generous and honestly the 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 german crew the next day when we left were weeping because the people mm. gave that much money as gratuity and they ended up making personally taking home more money than they'd ever taken home before and i was wow. like i was like wow that's uh good good old christians you know? that story <laughs> ended better than i thought it would because i, I also like, know like waitresses my- are always like when a bunch of christians show show up we're not getting tipped no that would <laughs> you know, that would like, fit in like the hollywood narrative of what no, Wheaton college is it. like but I it was love it. it was definitely they were unbelievably generous they just didn't want to so dance you know? <laughs> yes don't make them dance okay um so yeah wow. those are the same things i think about and the consumer identity is a big part of you know any of us who have, you know, bumper stickers on our car or think about, uh, uh, you know, I'm a Delta customer, not an American Airlines customer. That, that is, I think that's a large part of people's identities. And I, but I also feel 
I feel for everyone who uh, the shop is the last place where you can really assert some identity, some, some or some some agency, and of mm-hmm. of course it's it's so it's complicated. But I'm also uh, we should pray for the uh, the service workers um, of oh all kinds, gosh. including clergy, who have yeah. been just the recipients who have had to absorb, shall we say, the 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 uh, the trauma and the negativity and the grief has to go somewhere. The need and it has the been need. absorbed by a lot of I think. People people who are not paid enough to absorb anything like that. So I don't know. In fact, it bleeds into this next uh, thing from Nadia Bols Weber, our friend who wrote a uh, fantastic newsletter the other day. Um, if you can't take in anymore, there's a reason. And she's talking about sort of taking this psycho-spiritual pulse of the country. She says, I just do not think our psyches were developed to hold, feel, and respond to everything coming at them right now. Every tragedy, injustice, sorrow, and natural disaster happening to every human across the entire planet in real time every minute of every day. The human heart and spirit were developed to be able to hold, feel, and respond to any tragedy, injustice, sorrow, or natural disaster that was happening in our village. Mm. So my emotional circuit breaker keeps overloading because the hardware was built for an older time. And yet, when I check social media, it feels like there are voices saying, if you aren't talking about, doing something about, performatively posting about fill in the blank, then you are an irredeemably callous, privileged bigot who is part of the problem. And when I am someone who does actually care about human suffering and injustice, and who feels every picture I see and story I read, it leaves me feeling like absolute S-H-I-T. I am left wondering, am I doing enough, sacrificing enough, giving enough, saying enough about all the horrible things right now to think of myself as a good person and subsequently silence the accusing voice in my head? The answer is always no. No, I am not. Nor could I. Because no matter what I do, the goal of enough is just as far as when I started. So I try and remember that one, we are still living through a global pandemic, and that means the baseline of anxiety and grief is higher than ever and shared by everyone. Two, the world is on fire, literally and metaphorically. But three, I only have so much water in my bucket to help with the fires. The more exposure I have to the fires, I have no water to fight, the more likely I am to get so burned and inhale so much smoke that I cannot help anymore with the fires close enough to fight once my bucket is full again. So I try and tell myself it is okay to focus on one fire. Mm. Very, I think, very pastoral um, note to so those feeling overburdened by not only the very real needs, but the, the edict to uh, demonstrate how much you care about uh, the problems in the world. Um, and I think there is something about the, the increasing rec- and widespread recognition that we are not, we're simply not built to handle this much input, especially this much sorrow. Uh, I know I'm not. Uh, maybe maybe you are, but um, I mean, I have a great capacity for sorrow. <laughs> not to brag or anything, but I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> um, I it's funny. So I posted a bit of this just because I thought it was so powerful, and kind of instantly got a DM from someone uh, that was like just justifying their and this person's Christian, but like the I think that was like the work their daughter is doing in Afghanistan. And it's like, cool, but like, is she going to make sure my seven-year-old don't get COVID? Like, I'm just like, I, I, okay. You know, it's like, but there's so, I mean, the point is there are so many things coming at us and there are, I mean, I love what she said. There are people that God charges with and calls towards 
working on these problems, but that can't be all of us all the time because everyone is always basically a part of the problem, mm. right? And I think the sooner that we accept that, it's it's so much like parenting, right? Like when we are like, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't do this, we live in a kind of shame that then makes us really bad parents. I mean, you know, like we, we feel like we can never catch up. We're usually on edge. We take that on our kids. We're anxious. We're all these things. And I think kind of the sooner, and I loved this article for this reason that we can accept that like, actually we are always a part of the problem. Mm. Um, and, and this thing, she says the goal of enough is just as far, um, away as when I started. I mean, it makes me think of that thing we talked about, last spring that like Easter is always getting closer to us, Mm. you know? Um, yeah. I I mean, it has just been, I'm so overwhelmed by everything. I'm so, and, and, you know, I mean, my life circumstances right now are overwhelming as it is, but I'm really overwhelmed for women in Afghanistan. Like I can't stop thinking about the mothers. I just can't stop thinking about them. Um, but I will say it's funny. Uh, I was, you know, I've just been struggling with with that, holding that really in a heavy way. And somewhere I saw some Amazon wish list that was like all of these things that families are going to need when they settle in Houston because we're bringing over a lot of the refugees to Houston. And I stared it on the mom's group for Josh's church, for our church, Um and, you know, I I mean, I don't know what to say. I'm, sometimes I cuss. And I just said, if you're anything like me, I know you buy a lot of dumb shit on the internet. And <laughs> instead of buying that Jersey knit royal blue dress today, which you can still buy tomorrow, why don't you buy, you know, it was like this list of these beautiful things that were in so many ways completely... I mean, literally foreign to us, mm-hmm. right? Like they needed a hundred packs of, uh, and there were three scarves of each of head scarves, you know? Oh. And I was like, this is very strange to us, but this would be like us rolling into Afghanistan with one bra. You know what I mean? Like, and so like, it was so beautiful to see these women show up. And, and also all of them were like, oh my gosh, I've been so overwhelmed by this too. Wow. And so, you know, I mean, I guess back to our last article, consumerism isn't all bad. (laughs) It's like, um, it gave us a way to kind of, to kind of feel like as a, really as a Christian community, community of women, like we could actually do something. Um, and, and for, for a day, which is a lot right now, I didn't feel totally hopeless about the situation. Wow. You know, there's something obvious super beautiful about you you buying headscarves too yeah which is not you know it's kind of the marker of how different they the they right. are from you and right um, but yeah you know those headscarves got to be sweaty and dirty you know what i mean <laughs> they've been standing outside like they need a front you know it was just no I, I just i i don't know there's something about um uh being together as christians yeah, I don't know where I'm. It's like, it's like when you know when we do those things as a group, right? Like that that kind of like we can recognize both how hopeless we feel and how hopeful the gospel is in that moment. Yeah. Wow. And it's less personally overwhelming. 
Maybe I should write a piece, Dave. I think there's something there, to be honest with you. (laughs) I didn't say that. Uh, Rutger. There have been definitely been times over the last, gosh, year and a half or however long it's been, we've been in this crazy pandemic national reckoning with lots of different issues that I've thought to myself, do I need to say more about what's going on mm. nationally, internationally, you know, especially on issues of, of racial reconciliation and, and, and things like, you know, things like that. Um, and I don't know, I guess I don't feel that pressure at the moment. I feel like there's enough going on in my church. Like there are enough people grieving the, the loss of a spouse. There are enough people who are um, clinically depressed. There are enough people whose children are battling alcoholism. You know, there's just more than enough in my church. And and at times when I've, I mean, there were times in the past when I think I, I worked out that need to feel more engaged through like, you know, virtual signal, virtual signaling on social media, which was incredibly effective <laughs> um, and just changed lots of hearts and minds and made me feel very self-righteous all at the same time. Um, and for the moment, at least, I just, I, I don't, I, I don't feel terribly compelled in that direction. I, I think what I've, what I've thought to myself is like, when it comes time to talk about some of those bigger systemic issues, I want to do it in community with like my own people, my own church and other people in our area, like try to do something more locally. That's more relational. Yeah. That's more holistic, you know, rather than just like getting on, you know, getting up on a Sunday morning or, or writing something on social media or, you know, um, and the last, you know, the pandemic has not necessarily felt like a great time to, um, forge relationships, new relationships necessarily at people being kind of hunkered down. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm just saying I agree with her. I, I'm, I'm, I feel a little more comfortable now than I have in the past with just trying to focus on what's mine to focus on and take care of the people that have been entrusted to me. Um, and I also I have my own battles, you know, which I'm sure a lot of a lot of people in general, but especially a lot of professional Christians deal with, which is the work life balance. You know, how much time am I giving to? my church people versus how much time am I giving to my home people, to my family people. Um, and that's enough of a challenge to, to navigate. So, and I'm also, I just am not on Twitter that much, to be honest with you. I sort of got, I, I, I forgot my password and I found out what it was again, two days ago, but only so that I could see the amazing tributes that were written to a priest. I know who tragically died in a car accident. First day of his sabbatical, driving his child back to college, preparing to do a pilgrimage in, in Spain and celebrate his 50th birthday. Amazing minister of the gospel was killed like 20 miles, you know, outside of his hometown. I could not believe it. And I just, I got back on Twitter just to see the outpouring of love and support and, and grief. But except for that, I'm, um, I just, I don't know. I don't have the energy for a lot of the other stuff, to be honest with you. I'm so, I'm, I was that 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 story of uh, Thomas McKenzie, I think, and his, his daughter were were killed, and I uh, it's just it's incomprehensible and terrible. My heart goes out to his wife um, Laura and his daughter Sophie, and I 
known Laura for a long time through youth ministry that Dave and I used to be involved with. And um, she also just recently lost her father like two weeks ago. Um, and that's just very, very, very hard. And so I, I, it does kind of come back to what Nadia said. You know, I feel like if you're, in, if you're actually engaging with the people around you and you don't have to be leading a church or even part of a church, but if you're engaged with the people around you, I don't want to say it like, yes, we need to think about things beyond our own community, but it, it's, there's a lot of suffering all around mm. us. Yeah. I saw the thing about Thomas, um, which obviously hit me in a pretty specific way um just because it's hard to imagine another family having to go through this frankly um but i really admired thomas um for a lot of the work that he'd done uh public radio had been interviewing i think it was like an imam a rabbi and then a christian clergy person and thomas was that person about how things were going during covid and he was so um funny and, and genuinely self-deprecating and, and, and also really honest about how hard it was. I mean, I think he could have gotten on national public radio and been like, it's going great, you know? <laughs> and, and it would have made all of us be like, Oh, and like, he didn't, you know, he was like, this is hard. And, um, anyway, I, I, I did not know Thomas, but I, I really admired him from afar. And, um, I just, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is true though, that when we are connected to the people in our life that we love, um, that we know, and that, so that does, that's not just necessarily local, right? Like that, these are these people all over the place. Um, when we lose them, it, it does matter, um, a lot and it grounds us in the brevity of life and it grounds us in thankfulness for, for Thomas's ministry, I mean, I, I don't know. I think often when people take to the pulpit, when clergy take to the pulpit with a sort of global fix-it agenda, which is hilarious because if you have seen a church try to do like, I don't know, uh, like grounds day cleanup, you know, ain't nothing going to happen on a global scale if these people are in charge. Yep. Um, yep. But like when you see a clergy person take to the pulpit and they're sort of like, we have to fix, you know, universal health care. We have to fix the situation in Afghanistan. It's like, Dude, you got to work that on your own time. Don't put that on these people. They're walking in here with broken hearts. Are you kidding me? Yes. You know, like, I'm just like, I'm always like, you take that business elsewhere. You find a therapist and a journal and, you know, something to hit yourself with if you're feeling that bad, because we don't need that in here. Mm. So I don't know. I, I, it always makes me very, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where you can really do nothing to help people. Okay. Yeah. No, I think, I think what we're talking about is there, this, um, overwhelming voice of the law which is yeah. good and holy in many cases and like yes. thou shalt help these people you know uh, yes uh, there is so much suffering you can help alleviate but the, the being crushed by it without yeah. any sense of the gospel that um that you are a person in need of help yourself and uh that that being motivating factor i was struck by another article this week about perfectionism during the pandemic remember we, we mm-hmm. talked a lot about how and i think we talked about tim Kreider piece where the, the pandemic gave people permission to say that they're not they're sitting on their couch or they're not doing well and this is that was sort of great uh this is a therapist who named josh cohen writing for the economist about the perfectionism trap saying that you know that happened for a little while but then perfectionism returned and people saying like i wanted to be the the one on slack who was who was who was seen to be the most active and and my kids were just the 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 great exception to the home you know the virtual schooling rule 
And um, he said something interesting. He said, this return of perfectionism made me think that it might be a deep-rooted and persistent element of the human condition. After all, the Bible begins... Might it? (laughs) (laughs) The Bible begins with the fall from grace of divinely created beings into sin and mortality. From one Mm. perspective, you could say religion is an extravagant scheme for the recovery of our lost perfection, at least in its monotheistic variants. But religion also has a contrary or perhaps complementary purpose. For centuries, it was the primary means through which we came to terms with being fallen and flawed, imperfect in short. Religious striving for moral and spiritual improvement goes in tandem with the somber recognition that perfection belongs to God alone. When mortals in the Bible, such as the architects of the Tower of Babel, attempt to usurp divine status, they are duly punished. In the religious imagination, the notion of human perfection is blasphemy. Then he sort of gets down to earth and he says perfectionism is slippery. It can grow from the soil of very different childhood experiences. The difficulty of escaping the snares of perfectionism suggests that it has a place deep in the structure of the human psyche. However we are brought up, we internalize an ideal of the person we aspire to be. Perfectionism may appear to spur us on to adult successes, but in truth, it is a fundamentally childish attitude. It imbues us with the conviction that life, in effect, ends when we give up the hope of becoming the best version of ourselves. On the contrary, that is the moment which life can finally begin. He tells an amazing story there at the end, actually, this article about a woman who's had that precise experience. So, um, yeah, what, what do you think? I think the thing that struck me most about this is that I had never connected the dots that perfectionism is part of original sin, right? I never, I never thought about that, that our, our need to be God, our need to be like God, that, that perfect, you know, because perfections, we talk about it a lot, but I still think in our culture, especially, and within myself, I still see it a little bit as a virtue, to be honest with you. You know, if you're what what is you know if you're if you're shooting for the for the moon, you'll end up in the stars. Shooting for the like stars, that. you may the, the moon. Yeah. End up in the moon, or, or whatever it is. Um, thanks for correcting me, and you <laughs> know, welcome. being the antidote to my perfectionism, I appreciate that. Um, but I think that that's so helpful to think about because I, I definitely have a huge perfectionist streak, and I felt for the young man that he described who didn't you know who did really good work. Um, it, I guess in college and then getting his master's degree, but it was never good enough. And it basically was completely defeated by his own perfectionism. Um, and I thought to myself, why, why have I not been completely only partially defeated by my perfectionism? Um, and, and I, and I also think it's because the jury's still out, yep. right. The jury's still, like, that's right. I still have time to blow it. I, I, again, I thank you so much. <laughs> uh, but I think it's because I'm surrounded by loving people. Mm. You know, uh, that if I was spending all my time by myself, just trying to do the best work that I could do, trying to live up to my own standards, I might go completely insane. Um, But to have people around me who are like, we love you, you're doing a good job. You know, I mean, I know that I had this unending need for approval. And most of that is just because I'm insecure. But some of that is because I do think it's an antidote to my perfectionism. That when I like when I preach a sermon, that I'm like, God, that was terrible. What a huge waste of everyone's time. What a huge waste of time I am. You know, to have my wife be like, it wasn't that bad. You know, and to know that she means it. Mm-hmm. You know, is helpful. Is helpful to just quiet 
my internal critic accuser. Yeah. And so it just makes me so grateful that I'm not laboring alone, that I'm not alone in a room with my perfectionism, the way that that poor student was, or that, um, Nathan, Nathaniel Hawthorne, was it Hawthorne short story that he describes. Um, and, and what a healing place the church, uh, can be because, uh, I don't know. Cause, um, Jesus sort of, he meets, he meets our need. He sort of acknowledges our need for perfectionism, but then he calls us to, to recognize how far we're falling short and, uh, and calls us to relinquish and give up any pretense to perfection, you know, to, to the, to the temptation, the desire to be God that we, that we hold. He calls a thing what it is, mm. you know, and sort of opens the door for, um, for grace and mercy. Wow. I mean, the thing I keep thinking of, and take note, this is like the first time I've had a sports example on here, but Whoa. Whoa. Um, Josh Condon loves the Olympics, and I feel like they are eight months long because he wants to watch them all the time. He and Jamie should get together and oh just watch Olympics. But I would walk through and sit down and, you know, catch a little bit of it, get up, go do something. And I happened to be there when Tom Daly was diving. And, you know, he's this super accomplished diver um, and everyone was expecting great things. And he did. He did a wonderful job. It was fantastic. He was competing. I think Tom Daly, I know he lives in Canada, but I think he's, he dives British. for British. Yeah, I think Tom Daly's British. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he was, um, he was diving against these two Chinese divers and they placed first and second. I think I'm getting this right. Gold and silver. And he got the bronze. And they were like talking about their, the, the sort of commentators were talking about the lives of these two Chinese divers. And they were like, you know, they, they say, they describe their lives as pretty boring. They live together. They eat the same foods every day. They go to practice together and they come home to this apartment. That's their lives. And that's how they won the gold and the silver, you know, that. And Tom Daly was like, you know, and he really was like, you know, no matter how this goes, I get to go home to my husband and my baby. So, you know, and it was like such a different, um, beautiful, like response to being in the Olympics, like, you know, and, and, and like he got the bronze and he was like, this is great. Like, I mean, and I wondered, you know, how much he may sort of quote unquote feel saved by the fact that, you know, I mean, I don't know anybody who, I mean, people do, certainly women, but um, win gold medals with babies. Like, you know, it's just like, I mean, that's expecting a lot. And it, it struck me as so incredible that this guy, you know, he didn't achieve perfection and he was okay with that because he had the tenderness of home, you know? Um, and what a relief that is. And I, I do think about how isolated we are now even people god you know we know people in their marriage who are isolated from one another who i wonder um you know the more isolated we get the louder the voice of perfection is in our lives yeah i think that's very perceptive i would say that um just along the lines of what rj both what you and sarah said that the I have a very strong perfectionistic streak. I think a lot of people who are actually drawn, by the way, to law and gospel oh, as yeah. categories, they're neurotic in the sense that they have a yes. perfectionistic streak. That's if, ev Speak for if yourself, everyone too. has it, 
If everyone has it, well, then then if you want, you come to a Mockingbird conference, you'll find people that have it in that are just it's right on the surface. So yeah. <clears throat> everyone will look perfect. They'll all be deeply neurotic, yes, right? Deeply afraid. I mean, did, did, did we, it's the only control we have. Did everyone just hear RJ's inner monologue about what happens after a sermon? I was like, let's give this guy a hug. The, um, and I've listened to his sermons. They're not that bad. I mean, it's like B, B minus. <laughs> Be <laughs> I'm kidding. He's, he's, At least I'm getting a passing grade. Praise fantastic. God. He's basically preacher. become my oh, all-time sh- favorite preacher in the in the oh, church. Oh, shut right up! I, stop no, it! I say stop that. it! I was like on the mocking pulpit. Uh, the podcast we have of sermons. I was like, I was like, we got to put someone else besides RJ on there because otherwise we're all we're all going to be failing that standard. Anyway, he's going red. Um, <clears throat> I would say that my perfectionist streak has not just not yielded perfection. It's uh, I've sort of reaped the whirlwind. Like it's um. It's responsible for an enormous amount of alienation and and just uh, I don't and I don't want to overdo it, but it's um, it does not bring people closer together. It does not produce no. home. It produces mm-hmm. the opposite, and it just it's not like a slogan we say or that we point to a Bible verse. It's actually true. It's That's no true. fun being married to a perfectionist, and um, unless you you really love them uh, like like Jesus loves the church, I guess it's it's really. Um, it's death in a lot of ways. So, uh, Lord, save me from my perfectionistic streak uh, that is all about control and all about uh, ap- managing appearances and status. And I do think it's it predates the pandemic. It will postdate the pandemic, and it is the reason why many of us cling to the word of God's grace. You know that. Um, Perfection is a what? What uh, that that Will Store quote? The journalist Englisher. He says, "Perfection is the idea that kills." Mm. Mm. And a lot of times, when you, I mean, I'm writing about this for <laughs> the letter that kills in, in lo, my low anthropology <laughs> book, which is which I'm working on. Like, very few people think that human beings are actually capable of perfection. Like everyone, nobody's perfect, right? That's our slogan. And yet, in practice, we believe we could all be a little more perfect than we currently are. Or we believe that that other person over there is a little bit more perfect than we are. And come to find out if you really know them, you, that's not true. You know, and, and in fact, they're hiding behind a facade of righteousness too. But um, because I, yeah, I, I think that low anthropology would say not only are people not perfectible, that they're pretty, um, we tend to get worse as we get older. <laughs> <laughs> Disastrous. We tend to we tend to increase in uh, our trespasses and uh, increase in our therefore our need for God, which is a, a beautiful thing um, in a lot of ways, and I think is produces humility. And you know, I was reading the words of Thomas Mackenzie's final sermon, and it's all about humility. I want to offer like a, just a bit of a word of mercy, though, to that I received perfectionists like myself, which is um, you're probably not going to get over it. You know, it, it's part of it's it's who you are. You, you you might you might chill out a little bit, but also to recognize that like um, sometimes the the parts of yourself the hardest and the most that you like to change are also the places where God is working and the ways in which God uses you to bless other people. You know, I was bemoaning to someone um, my own kind of anxious perfectionism, and he said, "Yeah, RJ, that's true, but." That's also probably one of the reasons why you're good at what you do, you know. And that was that was a word of of mercy and 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 grace. And I do I do like their things to be more beautiful, and I like to build things. I like to to do things. And I I would I also don't want to spend the rest of my life beating myself up for um, 
ways I wish I was different that I'm probably not going to ever be different. <laughs> you know, so there's there's a balance there. Like the 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 answer to this is not to think, well, I got to work on my perfectionism. You know, the answer is is to you know um, come to terms with yourself as you are. Um, and, and just be a little bit more merciful with your, with yourself, mm. I think. Um, it reminds me of that beautiful, beautiful moment in the angel that troubled the waters. Remember yes. the, the, there's, there's, it's, it's three minute play written by Thornton Wilder. In love service, only wounded soldiers may yeah, serve. It is your, it is your, without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. And RJ, you, I guess you're just a little more wounded than the rest of us. <laughs> so, I mean, he definitely is, but that is so good. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about forgiveness before we end uh, with hearing from a, a bit more concretely from you, Sarah. Uh, Elizabeth Bronig, who the wonderful columnist who was writing for the Times, now writing for the Atlantic, she has been on social media. She's talked about the lack of forgiveness in our culture, and, and she's gotten sort of raked over the coals for it. But the, the, Sean Illig at Vox interviewed her about this. Um, it wanted to know more of what she's talking about but when she talks about forgiveness. And Bronig is a Catholic and a very faithful Christian who I've tried in vain to get to speak at Mockingbird events. But that's neither here nor there. Um, Elizabeth, call us back. Call me back, please. <laughs> Hit us um, up. <laughs> they asked you the question, why is it so hard to forgive? And this is what she said. I think it's worth trumpeting from the skies. She says, forgiveness doesn't undo the fact of the offense, nor does forgiveness suggest that the offense wasn't really that bad. So a lot of the time when you read people thinking through forgiveness, what you actually see them doing is trying to find ways to mitigate the offense. People will say, well, I wanted to forgive this person, so I took into account that they didn't really mean it, or they were young, or they were ill, etc., etc. But the truth is that forgiveness pertains to a situation in which the person is guilty and culpable. That is when the question of forgiveness actually opens. It is not open up when you have a situation where somebody is not responsible for the offense. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is when you decide to permanently forego seeking restitution or vengeance, however you want to think about it, for an offense that someone really did commit. The interviewer then says, I think a lot about forgiveness, who forgiveness is really for, and I don't have a good answer. Is it for the offender, the offended? Should we regard it less as an individual practice and more as a social virtue? That's a really important question. This is uh, Bronick speaking again. Because a lot of resistance to the idea of forgiveness arises from the fact that it's often sold as a kind of self-help practice. Oh, someone hurt you and you're still traumatized by it. All you need to do is forgive them and then you'll feel better about it. And you can let go and move on. That's just not true. And I don't think it takes much experience in that realm to realize that forgiving someone and letting go of your right to pursue some kind of recompense from them doesn't feel amazing. It can oftentimes be, in its own way, another layer of pain. It's certainly not something you do for your own pleasure or your own health. The person doing the forgiving isn't getting a lot of bang for their buck. The person who benefits way out of proportion to what they've done is the offender. But that raises an important point. Forgiveness is not deserved by definition. It's not something somebody earns. It's something that's freely given. And so Illig then asked the obvious question, well, has the internet then just made us uh, worse, less forgiving people? Has the world we've built, the digital world, supercharged by so many of our pathologies, like the will to punish and humiliate, uh, has, it, has, it, has it been so supercharged that an act of forgiveness takes some kind of heroic effort? 
And then she says this. She says, I definitely think that the internet is very good at inflaming our worst tendencies. And one of those is the tendency to discipline and punish and prosecute. Not for safety, not for the preservation of community, but just for fun. At the same time, I don't think people have ever been especially forgiving. I don't think we need to be too down on ourselves because I think it's just a perennially difficult thing. I look back at late antiquity and the early medieval period and the stuff I studied in grad school, and those are, those are definitely not what I'd call an especially merciful time or a forgiving people. They knew it was important. They thought about it. They wrote about it. It was a virtue on their minds. But in just looking how society played out, it was something that, to borrow from Updike, was on their minds much more than on their schedules. Mm. I think this is a very important contribution because a lot of times when I hear people about talking about forgiveness, they think, well, you're telling me what, what happened didn't really matter or that, it, um, it was in, it, or that, it, I, uh, or that I need to do it in order to heal. Um, and that can almost be abusive, I think, in, in the way that that's wheeled out against people. But she's saying that it's not something you do to make yourself feel better. And neither is it something that, um, that it can be made smaller. In fact, it makes the infraction worse. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't say what happened to you is, isn't terrible. It says what happened to you is so bad that it, 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 the only thing, the only answer is some sort of supernatural form of forgiveness. Well, see, and, and <clears throat> Dave, supernatural. Well, we rewatched uh, Ted Lasso season mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. recently, you know, and at the end, towards the end of that season, there's a moment of profound forgiveness where, where one character has been actively sabotaging and, and backstabbing another the entire time. And she finally comes clean. And uh, the person she's wrong says, I forgive you, right? Which is at least the last thing in the world she's expecting. But then he goes on to say, he goes on to say like, um, he talks about divorce, you know, because both characters have been through divorce. And he says, divorce will make you do crazy things and you're you're just not yourself. So it's it's a way, it is a way of, of explaining this terrible behavior that she's engaged in. And I, I just, it makes me wonder in my own life, have I ever actually been able to forgive anyone who really wronged me without looking at them and saying, I can understand why, given where they came from and who they are and their upbringing or whatever it might be, why would they would have done something like this? And is that does that mean it ceases to be forgiveness? Like, I, have I ever just really actually just up and forgiven someone without any rationalization or justification or anything? And is I don't is that even possible, humanly speaking, or is that only? A divine prerogative, you know. I mean, I forget that people have wronged me all the time, you well, know. I don't. But the, okay, <laughs> not really. Not that people really wronged me. I was like, I got a book. We can pull it it's out. It's great when you when you yeah, owe but, RJ but money. May, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I don't know. Have you? Do you feel like is it possible to actually just forgive someone else without any rationalization or? You know, I've often said this is one of the reasons why it's very helpful not to believe in free will. You know, because you can look at the really messed up things that other people do and the things that you do and say, well, it's it doesn't say that it didn't hurt. It doesn't say that it wasn't wrong. It doesn't say that you're not somehow culpable for it, but it does a little bit allow you to have compassion on yourself and other people when they do really awful mm-hmm. things. Um, I don't What do you Sarah, guys think? What do you think? I mean, it's a complicated subject for me right now just because of 
the way that my parents died and that it wasn't their fault, that it in many ways was the fault of other people. And I, I think one of the more merciful things in my life, uh, no, the most merciful thing in my life has been that I somehow, for some reason, by God's great mercy, don't wake up really angry every day at the people who were responsible. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and I think for, for legal reasons, I'm not sure those people would ever ask for our forgiveness. Um, but they don't have to because I've already forgiven them. Um, and also I'm not even, I don't, I don't even know if that's the right words. Like, you know, the, the thing that's interesting to me about forgiveness is I think like literally almost all of the time when people have done something and wronged us, it's been so accidental and there's rarely real malice behind it. Um, and I think that like their, you know, their, their deep woundedness. Sure. Maybe that has caused them to do something to trespass, but, but not, not like organized malice. Like, I just think that's very rare. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, RJ. I mean, I, I kind of don't really agree with, um, Elizabeth still, you please Miss Bronig comment to Mockingbird. Um, but, um, I actually think it, it is, it is maybe the, the closest hum, human beings can get to forgiveness that we, um, that we do have these reasons around it, right? That we are able, I mean, that's a really beautiful, like that's a, that honestly, the other thing I keep thinking is I wouldn't have the capacity to forgive the way I forgive if I weren't Christian. I don't know. I just, those two things, like when people are like, well, how can you forgive them? Or how can you not be angry with them? Or how can you, it's like, well, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I, I mean, God took that away from me. I don't know what to tell you. Well, it's such, it's such a complicated thing because it's so hard to talk about it in the abstract and not like think of it personally. But I, I think it's funny, you know, most of the time when people really do these terrible things, they're doing them because they, on some level, they think they're actually doing something good. Dave, you're exactly right. And I, you're right. No one is as dangerous as someone who's convinced that they're in the right and acting for the benefit of others. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it's cert um, certain about it. Yeah. Or like, certain, yes, like you the get in the pulpit yes. and you say to all the exhausted people who've shown up at your church that today's the day they're going to fix, you know, the welfare state. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think it's a really important yeah. reminder that it's not just 2021 that's merciless. You know, it's it's always yes. human beings are merciless with one another. We 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 yeah. are much more drawn to revenge than to mercy, and um, it's our default setting. It comes so naturally when someone has hurt yes. us, um, and when someone has um, you know not just cut us off in in traffic, but just um, it. What. Well yeah. Uh, RJ, what do, what are you what are you thinking right now? I could tell you're. Processing. I would just think that that maybe that maybe the answer that maybe the answer to all this is we're just, look, we're just human beings, right? Mm -hmm. We're not we're not God. We're not, and, and we do the best we can to forgive the people in our lives that have wronged us, and to forgive ourselves, and whatever mechanisms we need to do that. Humanly speaking, we do it, 
And then we just wait for God's forgiveness to show up. Yeah. You know, whether temporarily, and we know it's going to show up eternally. And like you said, Sarah, sometimes you just, in that beautiful Stephen Colbert way, you wake up and you realize that you're thankful for the thing you most wish hadn't happened. Right. You know, but it's not a human work. It is It is a no. divine work. No. Um, and, and so to try to, you know, um, talk about how you forgive, you know, really, truly forgive wholly with your whole heart without any explanation or rationalization is maybe just a fool's errand and and you just wait for it to um to be manifest well it no it's it's a really this is clearly a topic that we all have a lot to say about because i think that um the command to forgive is another one of these commands that i sign on to and yet i know that yelling at people they need to forgive other people is never going to produce that's the law the law is you must forgive so and so the gospel is you have been forgiven yes yes uh in cases of abuse, for example, in, even in your own in, in abuse, how many times have I heard? It's especially uh, women say that they've been told by pastors that they have to forgive their abuser, and that's a way to kind of. Um, there may be even a noble intention behind that, an attempt to sort of force some sort of healing, but it is. Um, in that situation, it's not, it's not its not necessarily for them to do. Like, God God right. can forgive that person. And maybe I can have faith right. that God can forgive that person. But it's not... Um, th- th- let us never forget that the command to forgive, as beautiful and, and hopeful as it is, and as much as it creates second chances for people, and everyone basically needs not just a second chance, but a gazillion chances, it is still the law. Seven. And it is still... Yeah. Um, it is still uh, yes, Jesus is here to proclaim forgiveness. Uh, of, of, of us and um, that's a starting point for any kind of further further forgiveness and you may never get there you may never say you know what I'm never going to forgive the person that uh, that did this to me and uh, that's in God's hands and I just am going to leave it at there because that's that's all I can do and I think that's okay um, that's not that person is no less trusting in God if anything they might be more trusting in the Lord to to deal with what they cannot do I mean, I also know in my life, you know, there have been people that I feel like I have forgiven for hurting me in certain ways. Um, But I also know it's not like a one-time thing. Sometimes it's like a, uh, then you have a memory of something and and you're hurt again, you know. And um, forgiveness, again, to the type we're talking about at the heart of the Christian faith is really divine. It is God's God's forgiveness. It's final. Because if you've you've ever been in any kind of relationship, you know that forgiveness isn't a, a, you can't just do it once, you know. It's sort of a state of being, and yet something we, at the marriage service, at least in the Episcopal Church, we pray for. We we pray in the marriage service that people would be that forgiveness would be present because other because we know that it can't be present on on our our own steam and our own volition. Well, along those lines, I know there's that's I hope that's not too uh, you know intense, but here we go. Uh, Sarah, you wrote something. <laughs> we try to keep it light here on the mocking cast. Sarah, you wrote something extremely powerful about an experience you had this this summer, and I was hoping maybe you could just relate. It, and I, I can read a little bit from your piece, but why not just hear from you directly if you're willing to share? Sure. Um, I This summer, we were sort of headed towards leaving Mississippi, 
Josh had already gone home and, um, I had the morning to myself. So I went and walked around downtown and I went into St. Peter's Episcopal church there on the square, which was my church during college and a really, um, life-changing place for me in a lot of ways. You know, it's, it's, it's funny being a priest's wife, even at a church. I don't know if there's ever been a priest's wife who's loved a church as much as I love Holy Spirit. Oh. And yet, it is still a place where I feel a little bit on display, and it is still hard to fall apart there, honestly. And I, you know, and I, I have said that to dear people who I love who go there. It's just, there's something about it that, um, and I would have told you I could have fallen apart right before this happened, but I have learned that I cannot. And so... Anyway, I can fall apart at St. Peter's on the square in Oxford and I could feel this wave of grief coming and I, and I walked into the church and no one was there. And I was thinking about, um, Paul Zoll and how he talks about how we, um, we often function as though real healing can't happen in churches. I think a lot of churches act like real healing can't happen in churches. And... Um, I looked to the stained glass window tomorrow, which is a really old stained glass window. And it said, blessed are the broken hearted. And I was like, that's a weird translation. Um, <laughs> and also I thought like, what a, what a funny thing to, to put on a window. Like you would never like RJ, you're, you will never like run a capital campaign for new stained glass windows. You're like, this is what we're going to put, you know? blessed are the brokenhearted. <laughs> like nobody gives money to that. And, um, so I closed my eyes and just got this beautiful vision of both of my parents, um, arriving in heaven and they were greeted by both of their parents. And that would have never happened in my mother's lifetime and probably wouldn't have happened in my father's just in this deeply, like biblical, like return of the prodigal child kind of embraced by their parents. And, you know, for the first time I had a lot of peace about where they were, which was initially, and I probably had conversations with both of you about it, but very difficult for me because I had just been with my parents a week and a half before they died. And so when everyone's like, oh, they're in heaven, I was like, I don't even know what that means. I can't even like wrap my brain around that. So I got this real piece of where they were. And then I um, I heard a noise in the church that made me jump. And I opened my eyes and I looked to the right of the window and it actually says, blessed are the pure in heart. Hmm. And it was so jarring that I closed my eyes again and looked again to see if it was like a window that like flipped or something. Um, and it wasn't like, I realized in that moment that God had just given me, I really, the first thought I had was like, shit, this is like when the Mary statue cries, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it was just, it was like purely of God. It was purely a vision. It was like all of those things. And, um, hmm. yeah. And then I called Dave and cried on the phone for a while, but uh, <laughs> I did from the church and, it, and there was a huge rainstorm that hit like right at the same time. It was really kind of a crazy, crazy thing, but mm. yeah, such a gift. I mean, I real, I genuinely, I say this in the piece, but I didn't cry for probably three weeks afterwards. It was so, I got so much peace from just knowing that they're okay, you know? Can I, can I read something you, you wrote, sure. some part of that you wrote about it? 
because you know when you called me that was uh it was one of these classic things where you know the the weakness is what is where God is not just in your life but in in mine as well like I was at a not feeling great about a variety of things and that call just was such a lightning bolt of grace um uh, you wrote this. You said, I went so long, you write, I did not cry for three weeks after this happened. I went so long without sobbing, it was almost alarming. My prayers have changed from pleading with God for understanding to telling God to let my parents know that we are okay. Because I know finally that they are okay. And you write this. Life is one brutal lesson in learning that nothing is linear. Not childhood, not parenting, not marriage, not sanctification, and definitely not grief. But it is not shapeless either. So much of my loss and failed ambitions are really just cross-shaped, where the purity of God's love meets the brokenness of my heart again and again and again. Healing never happens the way we want to. It can't. Yeah. It's funny, after I had this experience, um, my mom's best friend, who, Dave, you were at their funeral, um, she... um, she told me she had this dream about my mom that, um, you know, we had my brother's shower for his wedding, uh, two weekends ago. And, um, you know, I just, they're so beautiful and young, my brother and future sister-in-law. And I just walked in and sort of burst into tears because, you know, they were so beautiful and I'm so proud of them. And yet there are these people who are not there. And my mom's best friend, uh, who my mom was on the way to visit when she died. My parents were on the way to visit my mom's best friend and her, her stepdad. And she came over to me and she said, your mom, your mom came to me in a dream this week. And, and she, she told me she wants me to hug both of her children. Cause there's, you know, cause they can't be here. And the world is so hard right now and things feel so heavy. And, um, I told Josh this week, I said, I'm either, either I'm going to be old and I'll look around at all the world's problems and think, oh my gosh, I didn't realize we could solve those problems. Or I'm just like, we're all going to live in a hovel together and the children are going to be with us and I'm going to be wearing a babushka all the time. And, you know, I think, I think that, that there's comfort in both of those visions for me. (laughs) There is comfort in knowing that the, the, the space between here and where my parents is, is not impenetrable. Um, and that I'm promised that, um, that I will get to go there, um, and that they will embrace me. And, um, and there's, even though this is an incredibly hard time era to be raising children in, there was also something in that vision for me that was like, but you have been given these people to love and to mother. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just thankful for Mockingbird because I can write this stuff down. <laughs> mm. You know, mm. I was like, this is the most Protestant version of the Mary statue thing ever. <laughs> oh. like, a broken think. heart is a pure heart, you write. Yeah, I mean, that that was like, the pure thing was so weird because I don't like that word, you know? Pure. I mean, I, I mean yeah. you want to talk about like, you know, perfection, like purity is, those are kind of the same in my mind. And especially as a woman, like, it's like, ooh, that ship sailed, you know? Um, And that was, like, Josh said to me, because I was, like, wrestling with that. I was like, I don't understand why I said, you know, the thing about a pure heart. And he was like, well, a broken heart is a pure heart. And I was like, oh, my gosh, yeah. So, you know, 
it's just a lot of hard stuff and a lot to be thankful for. RJ, any um any response? Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna Bible nerd for a sec. Please. But I have always found that beatitude to be a bit jarring, right? Because you get to Matthew chapter five and it's this litany of brokenness, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the meek. Um, blessed are the merciful. But then suddenly, you're right. I've always had a difficulty with the next one being blessed or the pure in heart. It's like one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> you know, it doesn't feel right to me. Um, but but yeah, when you said that, it just made me think of um, Psalm 51, you know, as... as David is lamenting his um, his being caught at having committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he he uh, fifth, Psalm fifty one fifth seventeen is you know um, the sacrifice of God is a is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise, um, and I, I think I'll never think about that beatitude the same way because you're right, sir. I think about purity the same way. It's like. The beatitudes are like weakness, weakness, hunger, you know, brokenness, and then all of a sudden purity. It's like, well, maybe a pure heart is a broken heart because God's heart is broken for the world and for us. And if we have that same broken heart, then we're, um, we have God's heart, which is a helpful thought right now because there's a lot to be broken hearted yeah, about sure. out there, you know, um, sure. and, uh, doesn't it feel like you could be an old man wearing a babushka? Ivan, I thought babushka. What is a babushka? <laughs> the thing you tie around your head under your. I chin. thought that was the Russian word for grandma. Is that is that same. the same I thing? Mean, I could end up okay. there. Yes. <laughs> All right, you could. You're just like when I think Tolstoy novel, I think you. Yes, that's right, yes. right, right, right in the wheelhouse. <laughs> right in the it's wheel, like, totally. Garrison Keillor said something like, "I thought I was when I was a young man. I thought I was going to be famous, but it turns out I'm just an old man that sits in the dirt." You know, like, oh, he's famous, <laughs> just not why he thought he would be. <laughs> oh God! Be careful what you wish for. Well, I think that's yeah. there's what other place to end is there than that. Um, God's heart is broken, and the, to have a broken heart is to be close to close to God's heart. Um, yeah, I I got that's about how, how what's a better way to go into a bustling fall than with Ooh, a bustling. broken heart uh, because uh, that's where the light gets in as they say I think um, well it's certainly where it's gotten in today so thank you both of you uh, for getting on for being yourselves missed I've you guys really missed good. you I've missed yeah. this actually I kind of need it yeah. um, and we'll be back in a few weeks so yep blessings to you bye Bye, you guys. Bye.
Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.